uh, to 1 John uh, chapter 2. Better take them now before more come. Uh, so our title today is The Confident Christian, and we're going to be in 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. We're making our way through uh, this book. The title is um, Life in Christ, and uh, so that's what we've been looking at, is what does it mean to live in Christ? And so as we begin, and before we start reading, let me ask a question. Uh, do you have confidence that you're a Christian? If you're a believer here in Jesus Christ, do you have confidence in your faith? Do you have assurance in your salvation? Do you look forward to the day that Christ returns? Do you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that when when Christ returns, that you will be received into the arms of the Father? As Christians, uh, our assurance is not like rolling dice. We're not hoping to get snake eyes. Uh, And what we're going to see is that we're supposed to have assurance in our salvation. Now, this is very different from other religions. Uh, Muslims, for example, do not have any confidence in their salvation. They perform their works, uh, known as the five pillars, and they do those daily and, and regularly as a means of earning their salvation. And what they hope is that their good deeds will outweigh their bad deeds. But even the most faithful Muslim will still say, I have no assurance of my salvation. Muhammad himself, the great prophet, was unsure of his final destination. In fact, one of his most trusted generals said this when he was dying. I am none other than as a drowning man who seeth possibility of escape with life and hopeth for it, but feareth he may die and lose it, and so plungeth about with hands and feet. Had I the whole east and west, gladly would I give up all to be delivered from this awful terror that is hanging over me. Here he is, he's dying, and he says, look, I would, if I had everything in the east and the west, I'd give it all up just so I'd know where I was going to go. I have zero confidence. It's a horrible thing not to have assurance. It can cause despair, fear, and anxiety, but as Christians, we are meant to be confident in our salvation. We can approach death with boldness because we know what and who lies beyond the grave. And so what we're going to do is we're going to see the confidence that we have in our salvation uh, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 28 to chapter 3, verse 10. So I'm going to invite you to stand. We stand here when we read God's Word. We do so because we believe God's Word is inspired, comes with His full authority, and to honor our God and King. So chapter 2, verse tw- 28. And now, little children, abide in Him. So that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. 
you know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you now, and in this passage, you show that we are to be confident in our salvation, that we are to have assurance, and you give us reasons why we should have this assurance. Lord, we ask that your Spirit would just work now in your word that we would have this assurance. Lord, I know that Assurance is something that Satan loves to attack upon us, loves to try to rob us of, make us be fearful and anxious. But God, I pray that for those here who know you, that based upon your word today, your testimony, that we would know that we are your children now. God, help us to know that. Help us to have that peace and that comfort. Help us to understand why we can be so confident. And Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here who does not know you today, that through your word they would come to an understanding of the gospel, that your spirit would work in them and they would believe in you. God, I pray that we will all experience you as our Father. In your wonderful name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. Um. So I want to do a little bit of a recap from last week. In fact, if you weren't here, I would, uh, our, all of our sermons are up online. I would encourage you, go back and listen to it, just to really set the stage for where we're at today. But I'll just do the mini quick recap. Uh, what we've seen is that there are many people who have just left the church here that John is addressing. They've left because there's been these figures called Antichrist. Antichrists are those who deny that Jesus Christ is their Lord and Savior. And so uh, they have come with this false teaching. Some have been swayed by it. There has now been this exodus from the church, and the church is shaken. They're questioning, is what we believe right? Have we done the right thing? And so John what we saw last week, he comforts him by saying, no, these false teachers do not have a special anointing that you need to go to them. He says, no, every believer has been anointed with the Spirit of God. And the Spirit works through the Word of God to help us as believers to know the truth of Jesus. And as, Amen indeed. And as we know that truth, we abide in Christ more and more. And so, uh, as, we, as the Spirit works in the Word, we abide in Him. To abide in Him means to remain in Him, means to trust in Him, means to treasure Him. So in summary, the Spirit works through the Word so we would abide in Christ. And it's this abiding that now John is going to be talking about that fuels our confidence and our salvation. And so we're going to see two things today. First, we're going to see that we're to have confidence in our salvation. 
Secondly, we're going to see that our confidence is the very logical and natural result of the gospel. Meaning, we don't just say, we know we're Christians. We hope. It's not the way our assurance works. But he's going to show the truth of the gospel and that on the testimony of Christ, this is why we have assurance. And so that's what we're going to do today. So we're going to look at three ways that our abiding in Christ increases our confidence. So if you've ever been here and you've struggled in your, your uh, assurance of your salvation, this is going to be helpful. And as every believer here, we're called to be confident as Christians. So this is a passage that we need to know. Number one, we can have confidence in the future. Look at verse 28. John begins by saying, little children, abide in him. Abide in Jesus. That is a command that he's giving us, and this is not optional. And he says that because of our abiding, we will have confidence when Jesus appears. Our abiding in Christ causes us to long for the return of Jesus rather than to shrink back in shame when he's coming. And so what does it mean to shrink back? Well, it could mean two things. Uh, one, when Paul speaks in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he talks about a guy who has uh, done works, but when Christ appears, all he's done is, is hay and straw. That's what his works have been um, equivalent to. And so when Christ appears, they're going to burn up. They're not going to last. And so Christ will receive him, but with sorrow and with loss, we're told. So there's some type of way that Christ can return, and there's people while they've trusted in Jesus, they've not really lived for him, so there's a loss. And so possibly John is writing to them and saying, no, we're not to have this shame when Christ returns. We're to be fully confident. We're to long for his returning. So it's possibly to urge these people into practicing their salvation more. Possibly. Um, I think more on this second one, or very well it might be both these options, when Jesus speaks in Luke chapter 9, 26, he says this, Whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him, will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father of the holy angels. And so when a child has done something wrong and they're caught, often there is shame, there is guilt. You, you know, they, they begin to avoid eye contact. They look down at the ground. Their voice gets very soft. You're a parent, you've seen this many times as you come to your children. They know they're guilty. They know they're going to be punished. And so to feel shame when Christ appears is to know that you have not trusted in him. And it's to have that shame, to have that guilt, to know that you are now coming under the judgment of the Son. And so, um, so John is writing to move people from whatever the shame is, whether it's Christians who have not truly been living for Christ or those who don't know Christ, he's urging them to now abide in Christ so that they would have great confidence when Christ returns. And remember, abiding is a work of the Spirit through the Word. And as the Spirit works through the Word, we long for Jesus to return. And in chapter 3, verse 2, we see what's going to happen. When he appears, he says, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. So what does it mean? We shall be like him. We're going to be glorified. That's the hope of our salvation is that we have been saved so that we will be made like Jesus. We will be made perfect like 
Christ. This is what Paul says in Romans 8, verse 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Notice there's an unbreakable chain between the predestined and the glorified. Do you see it? Those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. He declared righteous. Those whom he justifies, he glorifies. God is determined with every single person he saves that he will also glorify. And so here, John is writing to the church saying, when Christ returns, the assurance that we have, the hope that we have, is is we look forward to it because we know we will be made like him. God has saved you by the grace of Jesus Christ so that we would know when he returns, we do not need to shrink, but we can run towards him knowing that his grace will be perfected in us and we will be like Christ. Number two, we can have confidence in our new identity. Notice in chapter 3, verse 1, we read, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And what's those next words? And so we... Well, this is your Bibles are open. And so we are. Chapter 3, verse 2, we read, Beloved, we are God's children. Bibles are open. We're reading them. Chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children. You guys getting your Bibles out now? Man, we're going to have to work on this. What's the word that comes after children in chapter 3, verse 2? Now. Now you should have your Bibles open so that now you know you're a child of God. Not because you have your Bibles open. We are God's children now. By God's grace, through faith in Jesus, we are counted as God's children right now. Your truest identity as a Christian is child of God. Truest identity, child of God. You've been adopted into God's family. You've been made a co-heir with Jesus Christ. You know what co-heir means? It means everything that the Son of God has, you have also because you are now sons of God. Everything Christ has, we now share in Christ. The reason why we will be glorified is why? Because we are His children now. Number three, we can have confidence in how we live now. In, verse two, in chapter 2, verse 29, we read, If we practice righteousness, meaning if we live in accordance to God's will, we know that we will be born of Christ. Just as Christ is righteous, so we who have believed in him are to live in righteousness. We read something similar in chapter 3, verse 3. Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Jesus is pure, meaning he's holy, he's blameless, he's perfect, he's without blemish, he's without stain. And as we hope in him, meaning trust in him, look forward to his return, we also are being made more like him. So, chapter 3, verse 2, when we see him on that day returns, we will be fully like him, right? That's what we saw. We will be perfected. We will be glorified. But, that's the end process. But what we learn here in verse 3 is now every single day as we live out the Word of God, as we trust in Jesus, as we practice righteousness, we are 
being made more like Jesus. This is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18. He says, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, the same image of Jesus, from one degree to degree to degree to degree to degree to degree to the next as we come and be made like Jesus. So the end goal is we will be perfected like Jesus. But from the moment you are saved, day by 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 day. You get it? It's every day as we abide in Christ, we are being made like Jesus. So let me summarize. Because we are God's children, we are promised to be made like Jesus when he returns. The way we know we are God's children now is by our lifestyle. Our lifestyle, the fact that we live righteously towards God is evidence that we are the children of God. Or in other words, the fruit of our lives gives evidence to the root. If we have trusted in Christ, we will live like Christ. Now, um, some of you might say, well, I don't know that I live like Jesus. You, you, you think about yesterday between the hours of 3 p.m. and 4.30, and you're like, I was kind of a jerk yesterday. Does that mean I wasn't saved at that time? No, I don't really know anything between 3 and 4 yesterday. So if that's you, and you're like, wow, how did he know I did that? Um, I don't, actually. Uh, so rather than taking like the Polaroid look of your life, like just, you know, this little snapshot, what we need to do is, is look at the trajectory. Look at a week, look at a month, Look at six months, look at a year, look at two years, look at five years, look at ten years and say, is there a trajectory of obedience to Christ? If there's a trajectory of obedience, then yes, I have evidence of my salvation. If there's no trajectory, if it's flat, if you're not growing in righteousness, if you are living as you have always done, then there's no evidence of growing and becoming more and more like Christ. But the desire to live in righteousness ought to regularly increase as we are abiding in Christ. Now again, we don't live in righteousness. We don't practice righteousness to earn our salvation. We already saw in chapter 3, 1 and 2, we are called God's children now. We do it as the result of being His children, not to earn and if we have not trusted in Christ, then we will not live like Christ. That's the point of chapter 3, verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of lawless, a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Sin, um, sin is lawlessness means that sin also violates the law of God. So those who practice sin continuously, meaning they don't repent, meaning that they're not born again, reveal that they do not know Jesus Christ, reveal that they are not children of God, and thus they have no salvation. So we've seen our abiding in Christ makes us confident in Jesus' return. It makes us confident that we're God's children now. It's confident that our lifestyle is meant to reveal our salvation. Now before we move on, these, these confidences, they're interwoven. What I mean is that my confidence in my identity is fueled by my confidence for Christ's return and my lifestyle of living in righteousness. Meaning, how do I know? How am I confident that I'm a child? Well, I look. Do I long for Jesus? Am I living in righteousness? As I do those, that fuels my understanding. Yes, I am a child of God. And yet also, 
understanding that I'm a child of God will help me then long for Christ because I know when he returns, I'll be made like him and it causes me to live righteously. So these confidences, they're, they're interwoven together. And so where does all this confidence come from, though? It comes from abiding in Christ. We have to know this. And how is it that we abide in Christ? By the work of the Spirit through the Word of God. Again, this, this last week's sermon, it's the text that comes before this one. So what this means is that our confidence is directly linked to what the Spirit does through the Word. If we are to be confident Christians, we must be people of God's Word. It's through the Word, the Spirit works, that we would abide in Christ and that we would treasure Christ. And as we abide and treasure Christ, our confidence grows more and more and more. And there's many Christians I know that struggle with confidence because uh, they want the process to be like a weed, something very, very fast. They want to just be like Christ right now. They want all the answers. They want all the, all the glory at this moment. But that's often not what happens. I was weeding the garden a little bit yesterday. We, we brought in 10 yards of bark, and we covered up all the dirt in our yard, and we covered it up, and we pulled out most of the weeds and all. I mean, you couldn't tell there was any weeds in the garden. It looked amazing. We were like, oh, man, it's perfect. And then yesterday, I was washing the vehicles, and I was like, there's, there's a weed. And there's another weed. And there's another weed. I was like, this is ridiculous. So I pull them out. I'm in the backyard later, then playing with one of the kids, and there's like a weed this tall. Like it wasn't there yesterday. At least I don't think it was, or it surely wasn't there like three days ago. I have no idea. So I grab down, I grab it, and it just pulls right out. The thing with weeds, they're pretty easy to uproot, aren't they? There's no strong foundation. If we want quick assurance, we have no roots. But that's not what God wants. He wants us to be firmly rooted in his word he wants us to have strong deep confidence which that takes process daily in the word and i dare say slowly in the word because god is determined that we truly know him that we'd understand his love for us and that's not something we just we get quickly like a weed it takes time. It takes the work of the Spirit through His Word so that we can be like a strong oak that can weather the storms of life. If you remember Psalm 1, blessed is the man who delights in the law of God. He is like a tree planted by streams of water. His fruit is always in season. Why? Because he's rooted deep in the Word. Listen, if we're going to have assurance we can't just say, man, I just want to have assurance. I just go out there and have assurance. It's as we come to the very means in which God gives us assurance, His Word, that the Spirit works, that we would have that confidence. So now we're going to transition to verses 5 and 10 because I can imagine some of you are wondering, okay, but is this confidence actually something we can have is this a reality or just wishful thinking is it just something some people have but we aren't really supposed to have it in these verses five through ten john's going to prove that our salvation in christ is meant to give us confidence and cause us to live a different way he's going to prove that most likely the antichrist in addition to denying christ we're saying you can live however you want they're probably saying 
You're, you're God's children. You're God's child. He loves you. It doesn't matter how you want. Just as an earthly father always loves his children, you can do whatever you want. You're surely his child. John wants us to see that, no, our works are very important for understanding if we truly are his ch children, and he's going to show why they're connected to our salvation. Okay, so we're going to look at the logic of our confidence. So we begin with the purpose of Jesus. If you look at verse 5, Jesus appeared to take away sins. That's why he came. Look at verse 8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So Jesus Christ came on a mission, and the mission was that he would come and he would die on a cross. He would be a perfect substitutionary sacrifice. Those are terms that we use a lot so that we could be forgiven of our sins. Because we're sinful, meaning we don't love others, we don't obey the word of God, we don't honor God, but we rebel against him, um, we need to atone for our sins. But the problem is we're sinful. We can't atone for our sins. We can't make forgiveness for our sins. We need someone who is sinless, someone who is righteous, which is why in verse 5, John says, and there is no sin in Jesus. He is perfect. He is the righteous one, which is why he can be our substitute, which is why he can stand in our place on the cross, taking the wrath of God that we should have taken. This is what it says in Hebrews chapter 10. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. If you know the Old Testament, there's a whole sacrificial system. It was a bloody system. The priests are always sacrificing, always sacrificing. Why? Well, because they're not perfect, so they have to offer sacrifices for themselves before they offer sacrifices for other people. And then they're offering sacrifices every day because everybody's always sinful. And these sacrifices don't actually take away the sins because the blood of animals is not sufficient to take away the sins of, the, of people which is then why Christ has come. Verse 12, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Notice, Jesus comes as the perfect high priest. He's the one who does one sacrifice, not for himself because he is perfect, but for the people, and he is the sacrifice. You see it? He not only is the perfect high priest who then sits down after he has made the sacrifice, he is the perfect sacrifice. And what we read is that Jesus willingly goes to the cross so that through his death, Satan would be defeated, sin would be conquered, and you and I who believe in Jesus would be forgiven of our sins. That's the gospel. This is what we believe. This is what we proclaim every week here. This is what we go and tell our neighbors and our friends and our coworkers. This is why we go to Lebanon and we teach the gospel to Syrians. This is why there's missions all around the world because there is a sinless one who came from heaven to earth to die so we could have forgiveness of sins. That is the gospel. That's the purpose of Jesus. Now, the presence of Jesus, and this is, this is where it gets really key. Look in verse 6. We read, no one who abides in Jesus, remember, abide means to remain in and treasure, keeps on sinning. 
So no one who abides in Jesus keeps on sinning. So do we understand that statement? Are we good? Because this is where a lot of Christians, we get derailed a little bit right here. Don't we keep sinning? If we keep sinning, then obviously according to the text, we must not abide in Jesus. Then are we not Christians then? Is that what John is saying? Is he leading us towards confidence or away from confidence? What we need to know is what John means when he says keep on sinning or make a practice of sinning like he does in verse 4. The verbs keep and practice are in the present tense, meaning continually. So, So John has in mind here those who continue to sin without repentance. They do not seek the will of God. They continue to live however they want. They are not looking at how they love others, how they love God, but they're looking at living according to the lusts of their desires and of the world. And when confronted with the sin, they do not repent, but they rather continue on in it. And in verse 6, we're told they do this because they have not seen or known Jesus. So he's not talking about Christians here. He's saying we know those who don't abide in Jesus because they keep on sinning. They don't repent. They're not sorrowful over their sin. They're not gathering with the church in repentance and worshiping God and trying to practice righteousness. And why do we know that? Because they haven't seen Jesus. Now how do we see Jesus? We see Him through the Word because the Spirit works through the Word that He would what? Fill us with all truth and knowledge. That we would see Jesus in the Word. So let's go to verse 9. So we've seen in verse 6, no one, abide, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. So we're going to flesh this out. Verse 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. At the end of verse 9, he says, he cannot keep sinning because he has been born of God. So John is saying there's something about salvation, about trusting in Jesus, that breaks the power of sin in our life. There is something about our salvation that causes us to now live differently. There is something about what happened on the cross that when we trust in him, happens to us. You see what it is in verse 9? I think I have a slide. Hey, there's a slide. Do you see the parallelism in the verse? No one born at the bottom. No one born practices sinning, cannot keep on sinning. Why? Why can we not keep on sinning? Audience participation? Because he abides in us. Now just think about that. Do you know that? God dwells in you. When we trust in Jesus Christ, we become united with Jesus. He abides in us. Why do we abide in him? Because he first abides in us you hear that that's unlike any other religion so you can kind of divide up most religions in in two ways either they believe in a god that is so big and so powerful so transcendent that we can't really ever know him that we can't really please him and he has really no interest in us uh islam is a form of this They can please God, they can please Allah as much as they want by doing the five pillars which they believe he has prescribed, but yet they have no confidence that he actually cares about them and that they will actually merit anything for him. And so they they believe in a big, powerful God, but has very little interest in mankind. Or we believe in a God who's so near to us that he's everywhere. In fact, everything is God. This is going more towards Buddhism and Hinduism and some of the Middle Eastern ones or Eastern religions, and that 
everything is God, like pantheism. And at that point, we do not have a powerful God because he's so near that everything is God and there is no power in that. But the gospel says our God is infinitely powerful. He spoke all of creation into place. He sustains it all into place. And not only is he infinitely powerful, but he's near to us. He's come in the flesh to die on a cross that he would then abide in every believer. You hear that? Why do we not keep on sinning? Because he lives in us. Jesus came conquering sin, death, and Satan. So he would live in us and us with him. If you've trusted in Jesus, then notice he dwells in you right now. And how does he dwell in you? Through the Spirit. The Spirit of Christ. Jesus abides in us so we can abide in him. So let's pause. Why are we God's children? Because we've been saved by the grace of Jesus and he now dwells in us. This means when God sees us, he sees his son in us. That's why we're his children. That's why we're his children. Why do we longingly look for Jesus' return? Because Christ is in us. He is our life. He has broken us free from the domain of Satan that we would have true, lasting, eternal life in Jesus. How is it that we practice righteousness? Because the one who is righteous, who is pure, dwells in us that we would live like him. Remember what Paul says. We preached Galatians a while ago. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but what? But Christ who lives in me. What does it mean for Christ to live in me? He abides in me. He dwells within me so that he would then, through the power of his Spirit, work within me that I would what? Long for his return, that I would practice righteousness and know that I am his child. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer, no longer I who live. Christ lives in me. Amen. It is the abiding of Christ. It is the heart of the gospel. He has come to dwell in us. That's why we dwell in him. That's why we live righteously. Not because we become some super great people, but because he is in us, empowering us and strengthening us. Next, we have the promise. Verses 7 and 10. Verse 7, whoever practices righteousness is righteous. Why? Because the spirit of righteousness is working in us. Verse 10, John clearly tells us how we can know if we're children of God or children of the devil. If we practice righteousness and love our brothers, meaning other believers, we're children of God. But notice the alternative. The alternative is not not being a child of God and being like an orphan. No, the alternative is that we're a child of the devil. Look at verse 8, the end of it, or uh, the beginning of it. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. Why? For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The devil always sins. So whoever's of the devil always sins. Whoever's of Christ, Christ is righteous, so therefore whoever's of Christ practices righteousness. The evidence of our salvation is not a date in the past, The day you got baptized, the evidence of your salvation is the lifestyle of obedience to Christ. If you bank on a date written in a Bible, beware. That is not where we have our assurance. Our assurance is that the abiding, is that Christ abiding in us reveals himself every day through his spirit that works in us through the word 
and through our actions. Remember, if you have kids, you ever notice how your kids look like you? Kids act like you at times. Kids do the same things you kind of do. Um, there's pictures of Ben right now. In fact, I was looking at one the other day, and then one that I had somehow saw from my own childhood. We're like identical in so many ways. Like you look at him and me, other than like one looks a little bit, you know, aged in the photo. Like we look the same. Uh, it's uncanny that way. And it's funny, like um, when we watch our children, they, they do the same things that we do. Why? Because they're watching us. Because they see how we act all the time, so they, they do the things that we do. Children always follow suit of what their parents do. Same thing spiritually. If God is our Father, we will follow in righteousness. If He is not our Father, then according to Scripture, the devil is the Father, and we will practice sin. And and, and you may wonder about this. Well, well, that doesn't sound nice. Well, it's not meant to sound nice. It's meant to give you the truth of the reality. John is very black and white. There's light, there's darkness. You're within Christ, you're out of Christ. He abides in you, he doesn't abide in you. You're, you're a child of God, you're a child of Satan. He's very black and white. He wants us to know there are two realities. And if you're here today and you're a believer in Jesus Christ, then know that the Spirit dwells in you. You are a child today. But know this, if you're not a believer, if you don't long for the day Christ returns, if you don't know that you're a child, if you look and you say, man, there's really not a trajectory of obedience at all, then you, according to Scripture, are called a child of the devil. And I would urge you today to repent and to believe in Christ. And if you have that gnawing at your soul right now, going, oh, that's, that's, that's kind of hard truth, and you're kind of wondering about that, I, I would urge you, that's the Spirit most likely working in you right now. I would say, believe Believe it. Don't leave this room without knowing that you're a child of God. Believe in Christ today. Believe in Him and know that as you do, He abides in you. His Spirit dwells in you that you would then be His child. There's two, there's two fathers. There's God the Father and then there's the devil. And you're one of them. Every person is one of them. We're born of the devil. And only by the grace of Christ do we become children of God. So I urge you to know that truth today, to believe that truth. And if you do, then trust in Jesus Christ today as your Lord and Savior. John's done several things in this passage. One, he's given us assurance. He's assured us we are to have confidence in our salvation. Jesus Christ now abides in every believer that we would have confidence. So I hope today, if you're a believer You should have confidence. Secondly, he's corrected two false views of the gospel, of how to respond to the gospel. He corrects what we call, this is a big word, antinomianism. I urge you to use it at lunch, Jeff. I had lunch with Jeff a while ago. What, What was it, propitiation? Dude, he did it. We're sitting there. He threw it out there right on the table. I'm like, man, he worked that right in the conversation. Um, You could try to use antinomianism. It basically means against the law. Uh, The idea here, this is what most likely the Antichrists are advocating. If you look at verse 7, John says, Let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous. Most likely he's correcting. It's only those who practice righteousness are righteous. 
Don't think it doesn't matter how you live. There are many people who, who profess faith. Say, well, it doesn't matter if you gather with the church. It doesn't matter if you read the Bible. It doesn't matter about if you love one another. Just live however you want. If you're saved, you're good to go. Those are the people that bank on the date in their Bible, and they never enter the doors of church. Or they do every once in a while, like Christmas, like Easter, and a few times in between. Um, John's correcting that, saying, no, no, your works do matter, because if Christ is in you, he's working. So you will be moving towards righteousness. And then he also corrects legalism. Legalism is the idea that we can earn our way to salvation. I'll just do all these things. It's also a perversion of the gospel. Um, Because John clearly states, no, we are children. And the only reason we're a child is because God abides in us. And so the reason we do good works is because his seed is in us, working in us. And third, John has revealed the connection between our confidence as Christians and the work of the Spirit. And so what I, I want to just, if you're a Christian, I just really want you to know this. We abide in Christ because Christ abides in us. It's clearly, verse 9, clearly. It's the reason we do it. He first abides in us. What does it mean for Christ to abide in us? We go all the way back to chapter 2, verse 20. We see that the Spirit has been given to us as an anointing that he would work through the word, giving us truth and knowledge. And it's as the Spirit does that, we abide in Christ. As we abide in Christ, we have confidence. So if you want, if you want confidence, then you must say, then I want to abide in Christ. And if you want to abide in Christ, that means that you're wanting the Spirit to work through the word that you would grow in your confidence in Christ and abide in him all the more. We must be people of the word. This is how God has chosen to reveal himself. Until Christ returns, it is here in the word that we see Jesus and we know Jesus. There's no other way. It's through the word. And then we live that out as his people. So I urge you, if you're struggling here today in confidence in your salvation, you're saying, I really want confidence. Move into the word of God. If you're a parent here, Begin to model that with your children. Model that. Let them see you in the Word. Talk to them about the Word. Husbands, shepherd your wives. Help them to be in the Word. Wives, encourage your husbands to be in the Word. I encourage you with one another. As a church, we must abide in the Word together. We don't just say, hey, good luck with it, but we, that's why we do table groups. And it comes September, we're going to launch them all again. We'll hopefully have as many people as we can in the table groups where we're gathering uh, weekly for the, what? The purpose of being in the Word, praying for one another, encouraging one another. If we're to have confidence, it's as we're in the Word, because in the Word we see Christ, we know that He abides in us, and we remember the purpose which He came, that we will be glorified with Him. So I'm going to pray. And uh, the men are going to come forward, and we will pass out communion. Our Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your grace. We thank you that, God, you have saved us, that we would have confidence. And our confidence comes right back to our abiding in you. And we abide in you because you first abide in us. May we know that, God. I pray everyone here knows that you abide in him. And God, if there's anyone here who does not know that truth, may they confess today that you are Lord and Savior, that they are a sinner in need of forgiveness, and they, may they believe in you. 
God, I pray, may they believe in you today. May no one leave here today without knowing that, God, you are our Father. And that you sent your Son, Jesus, into this world with the purpose of overcoming sin and conquering the devil. And you have done that at the cross. And now you dwell in us, that we would live for you and like you every day. God, help us to be a church that abides in you. In your wonderful name, Jesus, amen.